Now the Guardians are tabloid, who will be on page three? It's quantitative easing the magic money tree. Winter Olympics coming up. Answer me this, listener. Lizzie Arnold, who won a gold last time, is competing again. Good luck, Lizzie Arnold. Well, she didn't need our help last time. I'm not sure she needs it now. Well, we don't know. We don't know how much we helped Ollie in absentia. <laughs> Let's just take the credit, right? Because it's the closest to any kind of athletic glory we will ever get. Well, I do actually watch the Winter Olympics because um, mm, it's fun sports, it's fun. isn't it? Yeah, it's hurtling down a hill at speed. Um, and um, you do often see, I think it's sponsorship deals, isn't it? But you do often see the athletes turn up with typically Beats headphones on and they listen to something to concentrate. And I wonder, maybe there is someone out there who preps, not by listening to Eye of the Tiger, but by listening to us. I reckon. I mean, you're not going to listen to In Our Time, are you, to get yourself in the mood? No, you'll want something more sardonic and yet also more upbeat. And we fit that perfectly. Actually, whilst we're saying hello to people, uh, hello to uh, listener Sean, uh, who wrote to me following my um, frustration in the last episode that I couldn't find myself a gold pen for my Filofax. Um, so he, <laughs> he runs a posh pen website called Newton Pens, and he's offered to send me a free one, which is nice of him, but it doesn't resolve the issue. The issue was I needed to spend the money to get a gold. I didn't need a free gold pen. You reiterating the problem doesn't make the problem seem any more problematic <laughs> to anybody. I mean, now Ollie's got the problem of being offered a free gold pen. Mm. And that's oh. even more of an Ollie man problem it's than it was before. It's just a burden, Martin. A nightmare. Absolute nightmare. Well, let's get on with a question from someone who calls themselves Anonymous Ex-Boyfriend. He says, I have a bit of an ethical conundrum I'd like to run by you. Long story short, I got dumped shortly after Christmas. But that is the kind of long story that I would be quite interested to hear, the <laughs> medium to long version. Popular time of the year to be dumped, though, uh, Christmas. Oh, yeah. Although, apparently, uh, two weeks before Christmas is the uh, peak. Oh, right. So then you don't have to get them a present, but it doesn't seem quite as obvious that you're dumping them to get out of Christmas with them. I think the psychology of it is that as people prepare to go home for the holidays, they're thinking about family, they're thinking about who they want to spend the rest of their lives with, and they suddenly realise, yeah, not that jerk. <laughs> It's slightly dubious science. Um, someone's looked at a load of Facebook statuses of people saying, oh, boo-hoo, just been dumped. Right. And apparently that peaks on December the 11th, followed closely by early March. So do you think that there are advent calendars where you open the door on day 11? <laughs> it's like, <Uh-oh. laughs> goodbye forever. So Anonymous Boyfriend says, for Christmas, I bought my now ex-girlfriend a couple of tickets to go and see her favourite comedian. Bernard Manning. Is he still alive? No, Jethro. Roy Chubby Brown. My now ex-girlfriend has a habit for losing things, so she gave the tickets to me to look after until the gig in June. Fast forward to now, and I have got two tickets that are technically her Christmas present, but I spent £80, and I would quite like to use them myself. So, Ollie, answer me this. Should I give her the tickets, or keep them for myself? I think if our anonymous contributor hadn't given his ex the physical paper tickets mm. and then she hadn't given them to him for safekeeping, if, if in other words, um, he'd booked them as collect from box office and all they had to do on the day they were going to the concert in June is go along to the venue six months after they split up, then I think she probably wouldn't expect that she'd still be going, despite having received the tickets technically for Christmas. You know, if you'd written out a voucher or something on a card, but not given her the physical tickets. But having made the experience physical, having said, here you are, here's a thing, look, it's a ticket to go and see Roy Chubby Brown with your name on it, we're going on this date, put it in your diary. And then she said, you look after it for me. I mean... If it was a diamond ring, it would it would definitely be hers, wouldn't it? There wouldn't be any argument about like, oh, well, I withdraw that present now that we've broken up because you gave it to her. She gave it to you back for safekeeping, not for returning. Yes, but I suppose with the diamond ring, it'd be even more evident that gifts from someone you've split up with are a hard thing to keep. And with something expensive like that, you should give it back so they can get their money back or give it to someone else, give it to their rebound person. Whereas an event, I think it might feel a bit less like it was irrevocably attached to the giver. You might be able to separate that thought and go and have a good time anyway, but you can't really wear that diamond ring and think, Mm. this is fine. This doesn't have connotations. I think it would be logical, since presumably she was going with you, anonymous writer, to demand that you go together. I mean, what you bought her effectively was an experience with you to go and see her favourite comedian. 
you'd be a bit of a dick for pointing that out. But it's true, isn't it? When you buy someone theatre tickets and you're the other person going, like the cost, as he says, £40 uh, per ticket, you don't think of that as £80 you're spending on her. You think of it as £40 you spent on her and £40 you're going along as well. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of true that £40 of the present is his. I mean, I bought my mum tickets to go and see Bat Out of Hell. I'm mentioning it again. Still haven't offered me a freebie. <laughs> <laughs> when are you going? Uh, April, I believe. Lovely. But I bought those for my mum. But part of buying mm-hmm. the present for my mum was I also bought a ticket for me to see it again and my wife because she was jealous last time. So I spent twice as oh. much on us as I did on my mum as part of the present. It would not be on for her to take two other people. Right. Do you see what I mean? So I think he, he has a chance still of going to see the comedian. The question is whether he'd find that person funny sitting next to his ex. Well, I do think whether he finds that comedian funny is kind of at the crux of this. Taking out all of the moral and emotional implications, is this a comedian you want to see? Fine, keep the tickets. If not, give them to her and be like, noble gesture, no hard feelings. I mean, he says he'd quite like to go himself, but that's not the same as saying it's our favourite comedian and I really like them. It's her favourite comedian. Yeah. I mean, it might be depressing for him to go along to. You never know. Yeah, thinking about what could have been. And also, if that comedian is, is one such who picks on the audience and gets their stories, that could be terrible. Like, if you're together and you have to explain how you came to be there together, you'll become the story of the whole night. Mm, Do you want that? You don't want to be the story of a gig. No. What about just trying to obviate this problem completely? Call the box office, explain the situation, get your money back. Yeah, but then does £40 of that £80 belong to her or not? I think you just got to write it off. I think asking for gifts back is never a good look, even if it's a breakup. Mm. Here's a question from Nick, who says, I'm a Brit living in New Zealand, and I've been asked by my boss to MC a conference, which I'm happy to do. Good. Having accepted the role, I've been told that my MCing should include delivering the traditional karakia, an incantation in Maori, to open the meeting. Ah, Needless to say, in the year I've been in New Zealand, I've not become fluent in the Maori language and fear that no matter how much I practice, I'll fluff it on the day and either embarrass myself or worse, insult my colleagues and Maori heritage. Big stakes here, Helen. Yes. So, Helen, answer me this. Do I risk it or do I find someone else to cover the role? Someone else. Or at least someone else to do the karakia, not you. Because I think even if that involves you stepping back and maybe feeling a little sheepish about it, that is much better than fucking this up and potentially crapping all over Maori heritage as if the possibility of uh, disrespecting their culture weren't bad enough and realistic enough. Traditionally, correct delivery of the karakia was essential because mispronunciation or hesitation were bad omens. (laughs) What is it? Just a minute. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I think Brits have done enough disrespecting other cultures for well over our lifetimes. Well, you see, that goes to the heart of it, I think. I actually disagree with you, but I think it's all about your approach. Right. I think the very fact that Nick is concerned about mispronouncing it and fluffing it reveals that he's not the kind of guy that's probably going to be giving off a colonialist rule Britannia vibe. I agree with you if he were, if there was any danger of that, you don't want to do that particularly as a Brit. I think the danger is that you give off that vibe just by being a Brit trying to do this Maori thing at a conference. No, well, it's all about how you do it. I think if you're a sort of charming, floppy-haired Englishman who's sort of a bit sheepish about it, they'll fucking love you. People love that shit all over the world. People were forced into loving that shit and now they're like, oh, that was a bit wrong that we just let that floppy-haired aristocrat Come and uh, kill everyone no, and no, take no. all yes, our stuff. Yes, yes, yes. But if just 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 channel like Hugh Grant meets Louis Theroux and you can get away with anything, I think it'd be absolutely fine. You just have to be charming nope. about it. Acknowledge that it's not your language and nope. you're giving it a go. And people like that. I am a hard no on this. Get someone else to do the karakir. And for the reason as well that it's a prayer and I would be uncomfortable reciting prayers in any language for any belief system. There. And no returns. <laughs> Here's a question from Ricky from Edinburgh, but tonight in a Birmingham premiere inn. He says, I travel quite a lot with work and stay in quite a lot of hotels all over the world. Usually, if you're staying in a half-decent hotel, they provide shampoo, shower gel, body lotion, a shower cap, quite often a small shoeshine pad, sometimes a small kit containing needles and thread. But never, ever, ever do they provide you with toothpaste. Ollie, answer me this. Why? Well, Ricky, you say you travel a lot, uh, but obviously not to China, um, where free dental hygiene toiletries are ubiquitous. 
Hmm. And you've obviously never stayed at a Hyatt because they have a deal with Aquafresh, apparently, and you do get a little tube of toothpaste in your bedroom. I've stayed in a few Hyatts, never saw toothpaste there. Where do they hide it? In the safe? <laughs> it could be. It's in the minibar. That deal has now come to an end. But basically, it is true that it is um, unusual to see mini toothpaste tubes or indeed toothbrushes, even though everyone knows that they're cheap these days. You can get like 10 for a pound in the pound shop, can't you? It's very unusual to see them. Can you use the shoe shine pad to polish your teeth? I think there are a few reasons for it. There's medical regulation uh, because um, other toiletries like stuff you put in your hair and stuff you put in your face isn't as highly regulated as stuff you put in your mouth. And for that reason, the pharmaceutical companies charge less, even in bulk, to distribute that stuff. So it can look posh, it can be Gilchrist and Soames or it can be uh, Molten Brown or whatever, but the the bottom line is shampoo and body lotion and stuff is cheaper to buy than toothpaste. It it could be the cost, but interestingly, Helen, I think what it comes down to is the star ratings because most of the international star ratings uh, give um, stars based on the amount of soap and the amount of apothecaries that are available in the bathrooms of your ensuite bedroom, but they do not award an extra star. There's no contingency. They don't care. They don't specify. They don't ask about toothbrushes and toothpaste. So all of these incredibly expensive six-star hotels in Dubai yep. could could just get get that sixth star by lobbying the AAA to make toothpaste a thing. Six-star hotel, you get your own dentist in the bathroom. (laughs) Well, there is a theory, actually, that because toothpaste and toothbrushes is for most people an essential, whereas body lotion is a luxury, Mm -hmm. there's a a conspiracy theory that actually it's because you're more likely to forget your toothbrush and toothpaste that you will then call down to the concierge and then someone will bring it up and then you feel you have to tip them that they carry on doing it as a racket because then you're charging effectively five quid for the toothpaste, which costs you 30p. Uh, whereas you're unlikely to call down and say, where's my body lotion? Give me a sewing kit, a really small one. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose as well, just on the toothpaste thing, there is an argument that you are unlikely to pack a shampoo because it might leak in your bag mm. and it's heavy. Y- you are unlikely perhaps to pack a soap, like an actual bar of soap, because that's going to get manky as well. Whereas you can pack your own toothpaste quite easily, can't you? It doesn't leak. I don't think it can be practicality either, because like, you can bring your own towel. Like People bring their own towels, but hotels provide towels. They provide pillows and beds. You could bring your own. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's less practical. You could bring a tent and then have no need for the hotel at all. You just well, need the car park. In fact, you sleep in the car. Do that. <laughs> Ingenious. <laughs> just don't leave home at all. Just go and live in a toothpaste factory. You've always got your toothpaste right there. <laughs> Solved it. If you've got a question, then email your question. Yeah, to answer mail this podcast, googlemail.com. Huh. Answer mail this podcast, googlemail.com. Answer mail this podcast, googlemail.com. Hellcat. Answer mail this podcast, googlemail.com. Here's a question from Dom who says Lately, my auntie has replaced her profile picture on Facebook with a photograph of her late mother. Ah. This was a humbling gesture for a while until she started chatting to family members whilst still represented by the facade of my late grandmother. Did she haunt them? Yeah, I'm not sure that facade is the right word, actually. That sounds like she's hollowed out her corpse and actually put it in front of her like a mask. Do you mean visage? Yeah, visage is better. She even keeps this photograph updated with those Facebook frames you get for Christmas and New Year, etc. So it's apparent that this photo is there to stay. Mm. Every time my auntie posts anything on Facebook, I have to do a double take to assure myself that my grandmother has in fact not risen from the dead (laughs) just to share a video of kittens with my family. Uh, Helen, answer me this. Am I just thinking about this too much? Or is my discomfort for my auntie making a deceased relative her profile photo justified? Mm Mm-hmm. When you put it like that. Whilst I'm sure she meant well, surely it would make sense to post commemorative photographs of loved ones anywhere else on Facebook to avoid this morbid confusion. Yes, I think so. But when it's done in the moment of grief, 
when it's done immediately post bereavement, no one's going to ever say, oh, that's a bit weird. Everyone's going to like it, aren't they? And algorithmic, when you change your cover photo, you get a lot more traction anyway, don't you, than to other posts that you do. So she probably thought, oh, that was really nice and everyone likes it. And she may now have forgotten about it. But I think what you could do is say to your aunt, I miss grandma as well. But it does really freak me out when I see her on Facebook, uh, when you Mm. post something and maybe try and nudge her to change it, you know, in a kind way where you're like, we're all grieving. Maybe we could talk about our feelings. Yeah. And I think people just aren't aware of these technical reminders of the dead until they are pointed out to them because they don't see it from another point of view. And when my father died, I deliberately left my parents' Netflix profile called Karen and Stanley. Because I thought if I, because I pay for it, changed the name of my mum's profile overnight to Karen, that would look really callous. Like I just deleted my dad. Yeah, where you're like, it's over, get over it, Karen. (laughs) It's been a day. (laughs) But then recently I was at her house and I was helping her set up a Roku box or something boring to do with smart televisions. And she said... Can you change that? Because it makes me sad every time I log on to Netflix to see Stanley's name. And that hadn't occurred to me that way round, that actually she'd much rather that I'd changed it so she didn't get a reminder every time she tried to watch a film Yeah, that her husband's not there. So it could just be exactly, as you just said, Helen, that if you actually explain it to your auntie who herself was so bereaved that she felt it was a good thing to change the profile as an act of remembrance that it's creeping you out and making you sad, that it, sometimes the director's explanation is, is the one that will cut through the, the easiest. Also, on the whole, don't you think it's a little odd when people have their Facebook profiles as someone else's face generally? Like, I can understand why you'd have a celebrity that people say looks like you, because that's funny, but... I mean, the whole point of Facebook, the, its sort of differentiating factor at the beginning, was that it's designed so that you're honest about who you are. It's designed about where you went to school, who you're related to, who your friends network is, what your interests are. And it Mm. sort of doesn't work if you're creating fake profiles, parody profiles, if you're just using it for business means. And although they've sort of loosened a bit on all of that stuff, you know, for commercial reasons, the, the basic principles are there, aren't they? It doesn't really work like it should, unless you're being honest. So I just think for that reason alone, I mean, it's probably against their terms and conditions technically, although obviously... Her dead mother is not going to sue her. But, I mean, technically she's impersonating someone else by putting her mother's photo up, even though there's very little risk of confusion. So you could file an anonymous report about your aunt impersonating... (laughs) I thought you were going to say lawsuit. (laughs) (laughs) Just just in Facebook court. (laughs) Or maybe take a really gorgeous picture of your auntie, post it on Facebook, she could see the likes and compliments come in, and maybe she'd think, oh, perhaps that's what I want my uh, main visual to be of myself. You upsell to your aunt the idea of her changing her picture and you make it easy. So if in a nice way, as you suggest, you actually upload a picture of your aunt where she looks glamorous and good and say, look at my beautiful auntie, whatever her name is. She's, whatever, 65 today. Can you believe it? Doesn't she look incredible? I think it's time she changed her profile. We all miss grandma, but it would be great to see this wonderful woman reflected on her own page. Thumbs up if you agree. Then you can coerce her into it. (laughs) Do you think the aunt is on Tinder and her own dead mother is one of the pictures that potential (laughs) suitors have to swipe? Do you think you'd do better on Tinder if represented by your mother or, you know, in her prime or as Mm. yourself? I don't know. She kind of destroyed all the pictures of herself, if any even existed. I would definitely do better as as represented by my father aged my age. Did he have cool, like, 70s suits and stuff? Yeah, he's, like, got Jufro, open shirt collar hair spilling out of the top of the shirt medallion tight trousers Bee Gees look basically like barry gibb meets elliot gould and you do look quite similar but it does seem like it takes on a very different aspect than if you'd done it while he was alive like that would have been a funny kind of in joke when he was alive Mm. would it be different now that he isn't posing on tinder as my dead father (laughs) it would be weird whenever (laughs) i did it Um, that sounds like a tumbler in itself doesn't it yeah (laughs) Um, I don't think this would be the weirdest thing for me to find on Facebook, though, to be honest. I mean, the thing that I find really annoying on Facebook these days is when people post something that's just as inane and pointless as they always used to, you know, all the plant died today, except instead of just writing it, they now choose one of those colour templates and large fonts. So it's eye-catching and gets likes. Oh, I don't care for those. Great weather today, played in the snow, fluorescent green, large font. Fuck off. (laughs) I've never used one of those. 
No, because you you understand subtlety and nuance, Helen. You can use the power of your language or even a visual image to portray what you mean with the correct emphasis. You're right. I just want the words to work for me. But maybe they want a billboard. I just think it's weird. This is a little off topic, but uh, I've been making Martin show everyone his father's business card. <laughs> it's because you know Martin's dad um, gigs as Santa. Yeah, gigs. In the run-up to Christmas. And yeah. his business card is the Santa Dave. And I asked him once, why doesn't he call himself Dave Claus? And he just went, no, it's the Santa Dave. <laughs> Do you think that's to clarify the fact that he is an avatar of Santa to preserve the idea that there is a main real an, Santa? An and he's, Santa. He's just a representative of that Santa in the West Midlands. Has he tried to talk your mum into being Mrs. Claus? Oh, sorry, Mrs. Dave. I mean, I guess she is Mrs. Dave Ostrick in some sense. She'd be the Santa Val. <laughs> That's a nice, that sounds nice, doesn't it? When you do Santa gigs, Martin, in, in whenever your beards turn fully white, yeah. will you be the Santa Martin? I guess I will be the Santa Martin. What's Santa, Santa Martin? Martin sounds like a South American tradition, doesn't it? Oh, it sounds like a small uh, beach town in Southern California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This summer I'm getting wed to my sweetheart We've got the cake, the dress, the band It's Captain Beefheart And we'll both drive down the aisle In a pair of matching go-karts The photos will be epic We use squarespace.com to build our wedding website So our friends can RSVP and see our plans for the night And we'll link to our gift list We don't want any old shite Seriously guys, a hundred quid minimum Yes, thank you to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. And thank you for supporting Martin and Helen's travel blog, which is available at... What's the website again, Helen? Where can people catch up on all your adventures? Smugwhite.squarespace.com <laughs> The number of people that have asked us if we were, we were going to keep a travel blog, and I was like, I cannot imagine anything worse. But if we did, we would do it with Squarespace. Yeah, you certainly would. You could put up all the pictures and they would look so nice. Yeah, it's really good for photo portfolios. I've seen quite a few sites that have used that. If you're not a self-loathing Englishman, yes. then you should <laughs> use Squarespace to uh, distribute your content. Yeah, and even if you are a self-loathing person, you could use Squarespace to try and work out those problems in public because often it's useful to have the sounding board of a bunch of strangers. Mm. And if you don't want to show any pictures of yourself at all, you'd just rather use the template ones of attractive models going about their business and eating noodles in funky New York eateries, go ahead and leave the template designs up. You can do that if you want. Hailing taxis in a scarf. (laughs) Jumping. Yeah. (laughs) Always jumping. Or you could have a text-only website. You could, yeah. You can still make that look good. Whatever you want to do, go to squarespace.com, take out a free trial, uh, so you can play around for two weeks, don't have to pay anything, and then if you like it... Keep that website and sign up for a year, and you get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain if, when you sign up at squarespace.com, you use our code... Answer. Answer. Hi, Helen Norris. So it's Lyndon from Huddersfield. Well, I'm watching the second Harry Potter film, and there's a defence against the Dark Arts teacher that's like... He's pretending that he's really good, but really he doesn't know. And it's just a scene where he's talking about how he knows his counter curse and Dumbledore's game look like, I know, you don't know what you're on about. So it made me wonder, how and all answer me this, if Dumbledore does know, why would he hire such a rubbish teacher to teach Defensive of the Dark Arts? It's probably quite an important lesson. So in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, why do they hire such a rubbish Defence of the Dark Arts teacher? I still haven't read the books. I'm saving them for when Harvey's older. I've only seen the films. Which film is this relating to and who plays the part? Chamber of Secrets is the second book and film. To be honest, I haven't read or seen it uh, for at least 15 years. But it's not a good one, is it? They get better after that. Um, It's a role portrayed by Kenneth Branagh. Oh, I remember that. Very amusingly. But the Defence Against the Dark Arts, that is a cursed position. So you can't pick out this one and not be like, well... Why was his predecessor Quirrell hired when he has Voldemort living in the back of his head? Why <laughs> is the next but one teacher Mad-Eye Moody, but actually somebody else, and the real Mad-Eye Moody is a captive in a magic trunk for a year? Why are you spoiling And it? why is the one after that Dolores Umbridge, who's the worst? Maybe Dumbledore is not good at HR. You know, there are a lot of questions in the Wizardverse where you're like, they've got magic, why do they do that? But I think no amount of magic can solve human fallibility particularly when it comes to trusting other humans. But also, it's a private school, and anyone from Britain knows that those are full of kooks and weirdos. (laughs) (laughs) 
the question implies that Dumbledore runs some sort of totalitarian school, which is not the case. Presumably there's a board of governors, there's a lot of teachers who have say in the decisions, and they might have their own reasons for wanting to recruit a charismatic teacher with a high media profile to attract other students to Hogwarts. Also, he talks a good game, Lockhart. He's a high-profile wizard. He's very braggy. So he can probably talk his way into jobs. We're all familiar with this, right? Where Mm. someone less talented gets a job because they're better at self-marketing. I mean, also, Harry Potter exists in the world of muggles and half-bloods and all this stuff, right? It's not a meritocracy. People are prejudiced. It's it's based on the British public mm. school system, right? It's, it's basically Mallory Towers with magic. So there's no reason to suspect that the employment procedures are fair. You know, Dumbledore probably just played rugby with his dad or something. <laughs> also, isn't there a suggestion that, that that role is not desirable? Like, given yeah. that most of the people in that role get, like, killed or expelled or whatever, like, yeah. it's not a job that would have a lot of applicants. Well, yeah, that that was the problem because what happened was... After finishing school, Tom Riddle, who later became Lord Voldemort, applied for the job and got uh, passed over for it. Later, when he had become Voldemort, he applied again and they said no. So he placed a jinx on that job after he'd been refused it, meaning that no one would survive in the job for more than a year. And um, usually it ended badly rather than them being like, oh, I got a better job at a different wizarding school. They must have had 25 years of this if you calculate from when Voldemort cast that spell to the end of the books. That's Mm. 25 teachers lasting a year or less. So they didn't get good applicants because people were like, that job fucks you up. And they had to take terrible people like Dolores Umbridge. I mean, in a way, it's good that they remained committed to the curriculum. You know, despite not finding the best applicants, it's a bit like classics teachers, isn't it? I mean, they're all going to be a bit (laughs) weird because it's a small pool to choose from. But, you know, it turns out to be quite useful that you offer Latin and Greek. Yeah, well, I wonder whether they thought around the time when the books start that it wasn't super important because Voldemort had been crushed and therefore the evil forces didn't seem as critical Hmm. to teach children about. Why didn't they just change the job title? Why didn't they just make it like advancement of protection against evil or something i think the implication is the jinx would have also worked on anyone in the substitute job but apparently this trope of the defense against the dark arts teachers dying in nasty ways or having to leave the job in various nasty ways was inspired by spinal tap and the drummers (laughs) all being uh, all being killed off in ludicrous ways in quick succession oh that's a good joke lisa from elton Helen and Ollie, I'm currently on a walk through Centre Park's Woburn, but can you answer me this? Is it serendipitous they happen to find suitable land with a pine forest, or is there some landscaping involved? Do they bring the trees in and plant the park? Otherwise, how do they always achieve this pine forest and fern setup? So does every Centre Park just happen to be in a forest? It makes a lot of sense for them to be in forests, doesn't it? It's, it gives you that sense of removal, so you're in this holiday state it muffles the noise of children screaming in a pool (laughs) i think it's more the former than the latter you can build a holiday camp because it's not already a town i actually imagine it's harder for them to get planning permission to build a center parks in a natural woodland than it is if they were just building it in brownfield so actually Mm. no i in fact the one in woburn that lisa is calling us from um that took many years to get planning permission to do because it is a woodland but the reason they put so much work in to try and get the permission to base it in a in a lovely forest is because that is their that's their USP. That's their distinction right. from other holiday camps. Yeah, so they're not at the seaside like all the other holiday camps are, are they? Yeah, in fact, I know that they'd object to even the phrase holiday camps. We're, oh, back, sorry. Back in 2005, when I was a researcher on This Morning for ITV, uh, we were doing a piece about the rise in staycations Mm. Um, there was absolutely no evidence for this particular rise to be documented on the show apart from the fact the producer i think wanted to show some of the footage of like the knobbly knees competitions from butlins in the 50s and you know the 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 minehead monorail and all that stuff that you get great black and white archive footage for so we constructed this (laughs) completely untrue thing probably about how more people were going to holiday camps than ever before not holiday camps leisure villages well so this is it so so (laughs) In the process of researching that item, I had to call up the press offices of, like, mm-hmm. Butlins. And I called Butlins and I called Pontins. And then my producer said, actually, we should get Centre Parks as well. A lot of our viewers will be going to Centre Parks, call them, get some footage from them. So I called the Centre Parks press office. This is kind of before Centre Parks had a bit of a reboot to be the woodland holiday of choice of uh, urban sophisticates, as well as families who want a wave machine and a Segway. Yeah, I think it's very well established, you're right now, that it is kind of the waitrose of holiday parks yeah and then they were sort of beginning to go into that territory they've always been a bit european and eco-friendly and stuff 
but this was like yes the, our destiny is hummus they, they'd made that choice mm-hmm. um so i called the press office and i said yeah yeah we're doing this i met holiday camps and i remember the the woman in the press office actually saying on the phone uh we're, we're not a holiday camp we're a forest villa village a forest Ooh. villa village yeah. with a revolving restaurant <laughs> and a wave machine. Uh, it's not a wave machine, Helen. It's a subtropical swimming it's paradise. A water oscillation facility. <laughs> um, and uh, it's not a chalet. It's a villa. In fact, it's not a villa. It's an executive lodge. Um, oh. That sounds a bit too much like work, doesn't it? Yeah. What, executive lodge? Yeah. yeah. Like a team bonding exercise. It does sound grown up, but that's deliberate. So the thing, I didn't really get centre parks. Until I had a kid. And now yeah. I totally get centre park. It looks like fun from the adverts of people cycling through a forest and going in a pool in a dome. Yeah. And it is fun. But, but I've never been. Well, I don't think you should without children because I think you could do... I mean, okay, you couldn't go swimming in a dome, <laughs> but you could do everything else that you can do there. I walk around a man-made lake, eat lunch at a chain restaurant, okay. see that's, a tree. That's pretty much our wedding day, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Did see a tree. <laughs> you can do all of that without paying £500 for the weekend to go to centre park. Okay. The reason to go to centre parks, I've realised since having a child, is there is a lot of places to drink alcohol whilst watching your children in safety. It's basically that. Like, forget everything else they say about, like, the holistic lifestyle and being outside and family time. All of that's true, but the predominant thing is it's, like, laid out throughout the whole park is, like, playground bar playground bar and then the trees mm. are there for you to like prop yourself against as you spin between playground and bar and your chalet sorry executive lodge tree playground bar yeah do, exactly. do you end up getting into conversation with the tree where you're like oh my best friend <laughs> no, but it is actually almost to the point where it's hard to decipher sometimes whether you're standing in the soft play located in the bar or the bar that's located in the soft play you know what i mean <laughs> they, they, they they melt into each other and mm. i know this sounds very flippant and obviously don't go there to get pissed but genuinely like it's a place that's designed for adults and kids to have fun together mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean drinking but it does like you know there's starbucks everywhere as well so you can sit and have a coffee as well but it's just the point that you don't have it because it's really boring watching your children in playgrounds for hours not when you're boozing it isn't so in a way it's like a holiday in a time where people were happy just to throw their kids out of the house for the day and be like come back at tea time oh i think when the kids are like nine or ten Obviously, I wouldn't do that now with a two-year-old. He probably couldn't but, locate himself back um, yet, could he? Yeah, that'd be a bad thing. But when the kids are nine or ten, yeah, absolutely. They, you know, compared to sending them off on their bikes to go cycling around Woburn generally, mm-hmm. you know, within the area that it's uh, located in Woburn Forest, yeah, you're pretty safe because there's there's security everywhere. There aren't cars either. No cars. So, you, no. You, and yet you can load all your crap into a car and drive it on site to unpack it, and then by ten p.m. on the night of arrival, you have to drive it away. Really? Where do you put it? A massive car park. Oh. But it just means that kids like scooting around or something can't get hit by a car yeah which is actually brilliant so i'm I'm well unlike team center parks now no it's it sounds pretty fun you make a strong case (laughs) so to get around center parks do you walk or roller skate or segway do you segway as you know i smash my shoulder whenever i try and do any mode of transport more exciting than driving or walking so i walk That's but other people cycle driving's, driving's a pretty dangerous mode of transport i would have thought anything well touch wood not for me I mean, I've never been in a car. No, that's accident. true. Yeah, but I um, do injure myself whenever I try and do anything other than walk or, or drive. So I walk. What if you tripped over a tree root? <laughs> there aren't that many trees. It's actually, I, I've been to Longleat and I've been to Woburn. And Longleat is the more established one. Yeah. And it is nicer. Is it? Is it the same kind of trees? It, I think so, but they're much bigger. I yeah, because they're older. Yeah. yeah, so it's not like they're centre parks are committed to one particular type of forest well so to answer lisa's question i think that they build around trees that are already there but i think they plant more in certain styles of trees Mm. to give it that alpine feel because they even have a a restaurant there which is a a pancake house which is sort of modeled on a sort of swiss alpine Mm. feel and so i i think probably yeah 20 years down the line woburn will look better also pines grow faster than deciduous trees and mm. presumably if they've been building and they need to put trees in that are going to grow up and like cover the site of the car park quicker, mm. they need to go for pine. So, so I've never been to Centre, centre Parks. Uh, in my mind's eye, it's a little bit like silent running. So is it literally all under a big glass dome? No, I, that is the most common misconception. Right. Yeah, the adverts really missold the dome. I remember watching Going Live in about 1988 when they just launched the one in um, Sherwood Forest. Mm-hmm. And Philip Schofield and Sarah Green went round the water rapids Ooh. under the dome. 
Mm. And like Philip Schofield did a link to camera where he was talking. He was like, oh, I'm losing control because it's Kid's Telly and fell over. Yeah. And I was like, that looks like the most awesome thing in the world, a ride where you could drown. Um, <laughs> and of course, when what I went, <laughs> I was disappointed that it wasn't that, you know, Well, you're unlikely dangerous. to drown. Yeah. Mm. So you're right that they absolutely hyped the dome as yeah. the central point. But no, it's it's just one facet of the many... So the Many dome is worlds. just a bit where the water park is or something The dome's, like yeah, but it is, I, I think without it, certainly if you visit in winter, there's not that much to do. If you're there mm. in the summer, there's loads of outdoor-based stuff you can do, pony rides and tree climbing and watching birds. But uh, oh, okay. if you're there in the winter, it's kind of all about swimming. Because it's at 26 degrees all year round. Wow. Right. Perfect for you. I don't know why that hasn't caught on. It must be very expensive to build. Why that hasn't caught on around the rest of the country. I mean, why aren't all our swimming pools in biodomes? It's obviously better, isn't it? <laughs> Radio 4 is on 24-7, but that's not enough recorded speech for me. So I'll trot off to answer me this podcast.com slash audible and download more for free. Like Lord of the Rings, starring Sir Michael Gordon and Mitchell and Webb, series 1 to 4. Just a minute, Alan Bennett down the line, Ross Noble and the best of BBC News Hour. That sounds awesome. Yes, the Audible offer is back, listeners. I know, light the fireworks. Uh, <laughs> if you've never had a free audiobook through audible.co.uk before... What were you listening to? Just the sound of air rustling against your ear holes? Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Why have that when you could have a person reading out a book? That's right. So they've got thousands of books and yada, 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 and you've heard us talk about it before, but here's the special deal, listeners. It's a new thing. Mm. Not only have we got the old offer of... Get a free trial on Audible, try it out, get a free book. Then if you cancel and don't pay anything, Audible still send us money and support this show. Not only have we got that offer running at the moment, wait for it. Do you know what it is, Helen? No. What is it? Tell me. Give it. Give it. I want it. Whatever it is, I want it. You get two free books. (laughs) Mic drop. Two free books. That's a good amount of free books. That's twice as good as one free book, which is pretty good. <laughs> you get one free book when you take out the offer and then there's a credit in your Audible account and you can get it on a second one. And you can take this offer out even if you've had it before, even if you've been a member of Audible before. Ah, oh, score. Yeah, the only criteria is you can't be an existing member of Audible now. But if it's been 12 months or more since you had an Audible membership, go ahead, this offer is for you. This does, though, I'm afraid, only apply to UK Audible. So if you're listening in the US... Sorry. Shit out of luck. And um, have you listened to anything good, Ollie? I'm looking forward to listening for free to the audiobook by my friend Greg Jenner, who's a historian. And he wrote a book called A Million Years in a Day, which is all about the history of everyday things. Very interesting. Lots of little facts. Oh, that does sound brilliant, actually. Is yeah. it him reading it? It's him reading it. What's his voice like? I like it. As you know, I, I tend to listen to the memoirs of broadcasters because they tend to be good at reading their own books. Um, and I've been listening recently to, uh, well, he's not a broadcaster, he's a comic, I suppose, but Steve Coogan's memoirs. Aww. So not him as Alan Partridge. There's two audiobooks of him doing Alan Partridge's memoirs, which is amazing, but different. This is his autobiography. It's called Easily Distracted. What's really good about it is, obviously, he's an amazing impressionist. So he does the voices of everyone in his own life story. So it does add an extra layer of uh, interest than just reading the book. So he's like recreating his history teacher and his drama instructors at university and stuff like that. Gives it a lot of colour. I'll be honest, there's a little bit too much about Philomena. He's obviously very proud of having been nominated for an Oscar and not as proud as he should be about creating the defining comic creation of the last 50 years. But hey. If you want two free audiobooks, all you have to do is follow the link at answermethispodcast.com slash audible. And remember... Just by taking out the free trial, getting your two free books, and then cancelling if you so choose, we get money. Woo! Thanks. Here's a question from Sashi from Canberra, who says, Helen, answer me this. What the heck is buttermilk? It tastes neither like butter nor milk, and definitely doesn't taste like butter in milk. Well, it's kind of milk with the butter taken out. It's a byproduct of butter, traditionally. You churn unhomogenized milk or cream to separate the butterfat from the buttermilk. There are tiny globules of butterfat suspended 
in liquid and then the churning which traditionally was just putting the milk or cream in a barrel and then pumping it with a stick of wood until the emulsification happened of the butter and then you drain off the buttermilk and press the butter into a pat. Globules, fat, churning, barrels, uh, emulsification. I don't know which word is making me feel more appetised. Well, anyway, you make the butter, then the buttermilk is just sitting around and humans or animals might drink it because there's a lot of nutrients in it. Um, There's less fat than in whole milk and it has a sour taste, which uh, some people like. And you can also use it in cooking because the lactic acid it has is good for tenderizing meat if you marinate it in buttermilk to make, for instance, fried chicken. Yeah, so that's my only experience of it was in a fried chicken recipe and I had to go specially to buy it. And I did think, really, can you taste the difference? You know, is this one of those things where they specify buttermilk because that's the tradition in the South of America? But really, is it worth me going specially to buy it? Couldn't I just use butter or milk? Well, you can use milk with a bit of acid added and leave it for 10 or so minutes. And, and that <laughs> Choose is, your acid carefully. Well, use lemon juice. And that is okay. It's not as good as the buttermilk, but it is okay. They also use buttermilk as the raising agent in things like soda bread and pancakes because it's acidic, so that trips the raising process, creating the carbon dioxide that leads to a fluffy buttermilk pancake. So why is it that it tastes neither like butter nor milk then, according to Sashi? It's not as sweet as milk. It's more sour because it starts to ferment. And it doesn't taste like butter because it's not got the salt in it that I think is the defining taste of butter, the fat with salt. Mm. But the butter is salted after they're separated. Here's a question from Joe in Springfield, Massachusetts, who says that's one of the Springfields, isn't it? Most popular town names in America, yeah. Uh, Who says, I was watching an episode of Doctor Who featuring the present day Pope as a character. Mm. But rather than being Argentinian, this Pope was Italian. This reminded me of an older episode of Family Guy made during the John Paul II years where a Pope character was also Italian rather than Polish. While the associations of the papacy in Italy are pretty hard to miss, yes, well done, Joe, uh, I still find this odd as there hasn't been an Italian Pope in almost 40 years. So Helen, answer me this. Why do TV shows keep making the Pope Italian? Even if it's just to avoid any kind of trouble from evoking the actual Pope, why still rely on Italy it just seems weird for casting folks to keep falling back on this kind of stock character. Do you know what, Helen, I think of all roles on the international scene, you really could call the Pope a stock character. <laughs> it's reasonable. Just classic Pope. There's <laughs> some pretty uh, distinguishing features, yeah. And living in Italy is one of those, isn't it, regardless of their ethnic origin? Well, that's the thing. Even though the Pope may not have been born and raised in Italy, it's certainly a very Italian position to have. So I guess by representing them as Italian, you're not getting to the specificity of whether they are one of the popes that isn't from Italy. But there have been 217 popes from Italy and only about three dozen not from Italy. So I guess statistically, you're more likely to have an Italian pope than a non-Italian pope. And they're doing a pope trope. So they're going with the majority pope, aren't they? (laughs) The pope tropes. Great band. Much missed. (laughs) Also, Francis, we're on first name terms. He's the first non-European Pope in over a thousand years. Wow. So although they may not have all been Italian, they're going to all be Italianate. Yeah, he's the aberrant Pope, isn't he? Yeah. You're not going to make the Pope Argentinian because that would seem less believable, even though it's our current reality. Because Argentina has such a big uh, Italian influence that it's not that far from the tree, is it? Pope Francis, although born in Argentina, is the child of Italian immigrants. Ah. Ah, okay. Here's a Pope fact I discovered this week, which oh, shocked fabulous. me. If you want to go, and you might do this on your smug white people travelling blog, <laughs> if you want to go and watch a papal audience, that's what they call it, isn't it, where you go and see the Pope doing some live praying? Yeah, it's kind of like a stadium type of thing, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know how you apply for tickets? Do you pray to Jesus? Ticketmaster. You have to fax off a form. Fax? You have to fax off a form. I, I, I saw that's that difficult. on TripAdvisor and I was like, no, that can't be right. I'm going to Google this to see whether this is... You know, this is obviously a page from 10 years ago. No. <laughs> Still the case. Uh... If you want to get a ticket for the papal audience in advance, you have to fax off a form. You download the form online, then you fax it to the Vatican. How is that possible? You know how Pope Francis is thought of as a very progressive pope. And yet, this exposes the truth, doesn't it? I mean, I went to see TFI Friday being recorded in 1997, and I completed <laughs> that form online. <laughs> How do you have to fax off? Hands him in this. Hampton Court was Henry VIII's home. The O2 Arena was the Millennium Dome. Wasn't it? 
I went to see you in your room, but it had been turned into a weather spoon. So I ordered a two-for-one curry and a macaroon, but they don't sell macaroons. Do they? I just ate both curries, and now I regret that. Time for a question from Siobhan in Silver Spring, Maryland. That's an evocative place, isn't it? Sure is. Is it on your list? Silver Spring. We did go to Maryland. Didn't go to Silver and Spring. You chose not to visit Siobhan. Didn't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sounds like it a was, great place. It was a really quick visit. I'm sorry. It sounds like a place that's got lots of natural waters and uh, money. Either Silver that <laughs> or a slinky. <laughs> that's their town emblem. Um, well... They do brunch there, so I'm already on board, uh, because Siobhan says, I was at brunch the other day, and the Bloody Marys came with olives on little swords. Yes, good. Helen, answer me this. Where did these cocktail swords come from? Well, you can buy hundreds of them from Amazon. I don't think she literally means those ones, Helen. Mm. Who came up with them, and how long have they been around? Why swords? Did pirates invent them? Um... (laughs) Pirates aren't known for their cocktails, are they? They're just straight-up rum, usually. You could say, did King Arthur invent the cocktail sword? Because you pull it out of the <laughs> olive. They've been around since at least the 50s, because I've seen 50s cocktail swords for sale on eBay. But it's really hard to find out who originated these, which is frustrating. But you can see the thought process, can't you? Because you'd think, I need a spiky object for spiking an object. What's already a spiky object that is easy to mm. miniaturise into a tiny spiky object? Sword... Yes. Can you associate it with rum and other tropical drinks because those are popular in cocktail history? Yes, you can. Ding. And also because there are still a lot of injuries with people swallowing toothpicks that come in their cocktails because they put it back in the glass. They don't know where else to put it. And then it goes into their throat or into their eye. Harder to do that with a sword. How does a luminescent plastic sword resolve that issue? I mean, I guess it shows up better in your poop. It, It shows up more when you are swigging that drink. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, so if you're just drunk enough to have forgotten that you put your toothpick back in the drink, but not so drunk that you yeah. wouldn't see a luminescent plastic sword, then it's the perfect olive skewer. Well, it's, yeah, it's certainly an adequate olive skewer. I have some vintage olive forks that have a plastic olive on the end. I remember those. I was very fond of those. Yeah, but it does seem Are a bit they in specific. Storage? They're in storage. Yeah, we didn't travel with our <laughs> vintage olive forks. But... um why do they have to have an olive on the end? Just seems very prescriptive, doesn't it? And also, like, you couldn't stab it into something other than an olive because if you ate a piece of pineapple on an olive fork, there'd be this uncomfortable association with a very different flavour that you wouldn't necessarily enjoy. I know what you mean, and I'm just thinking about other implements that I've seen that are like that because I'm pretty sure I've seen some corn-on-the-cob skewers that have got cobs on them. Yes. And I think the answer is that essentially they're a novelty. You know, you can use other items to do both jobs, like a toothpick, even though you might accidentally swallow it because you're weird and drunk. <laughs> so I think it might just be that it was a way of, of selling the item in the store. Like you're living the kind of life where you need this extra implement. It's fun. It's novelty. Do you like corn? Have this thing with corn on it. You know, it's like those um, tins that say tea on them. Yeah. Tea, sugar, coffee. I mean, no one's going to really get those confused. They can see fairly quickly which is which. Don't need to say it on it. And yet it's become an iconic design. Or those bowls that have different types of pasta written around the rim. I'm like, don't yeah, tell me what weird, to do. And yet, am I going yeah. to eat cereal out of one of them? No. Too scared. Never. <laughs> I've, I've got a cherry pie one that's got the ingredients of how to make a cherry pie and the recipe in it. And whenever I put cereal in it, I just feel like something's gone wrong, like Heston Blumenthal's mess with my breakfast. Yeah, that said, my mum had this um, dish that she used to serve salad in, but it had a recipe for cheese souffle written in the bottom. So mm. she mm. broke the cycle. She reinvented the wheel. I guess these swords are in that kind of trend of kitschy... Uh, implements that seems to go with cocktails of the 20th century particularly you know cocktails becoming popular and us having little umbrellas and tiki styling and stuff like that and cocktails have elaborate garnishes on them sometimes for flavor but isn't it also because otherwise you're getting usually a brown or a transparent liquid and on its own that doesn't look that glam and it certainly doesn't look like you want to pay 12 pounds for it so put some toys in it Yeah, I was going to say. 
let's not forget the price. I mean, I think a lot of this is justifying the price, isn't it? A lot of the kind of mystique around stirring and mixing and shaking cocktails and dressing them comes from the fact that you are paying five times as much sometimes as you would for just a straight-up glass of wine. And the alcoholic hit is not necessarily any more severe because it's so diluted, and everyone knows that ice doesn't cost anything. So you kind of have to dress it up, don't you? Otherwise, why are you paying so much? I found out something about how toothpicks used to be a status symbol in the late 1800s because once they became something that was manufactured rather than people whittling one as and when they needed it, they were given out in posh hotels. Huh, but no toothpaste. People, I know, right? So people used to stand outside the posh hotels chewing on a toothpick to give the impression that they were wealthy enough to eat in the posh hotel. So toothpicks were a posh thing for a bit. That's a good fact. Yeah. That's like um, in the south of France where people walk small dogs around to show that they live there. What? Yeah, like in Cannes and stuff, it's a known thing. I mean, obviously, if you've got a dog, you're unlikely to be a tourist. I know some people go on holiday with their dogs, but it's a way of saying, oh, yeah, I live here. I'm not just visiting like you. So is there a trade in renting out dogs to tourists? <laughs> Probably. So you feel more involved? I feel like this uh, trend for plastic swords, though is probably coming to an end now. I mean, I know that they will have that kitsch appeal that you discussed. You know, there'll always be pictures of glamorous film stars in the 50s and 60s with them, so there'll always be an interest in recreating that. But at mm-hmm. the same time, with all this focus on single-use plastic now, yeah. I just think th- the time's up on... Uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't appropriate that phrase. <laughs> but I do think time's up on plastic swords and cocktails. <laughs> like, I just don't see them lasting to the end of the century. Why don't they get rid of straws? I don't know how I used to ignore it for so long, but I now can't relax when I know that I'm being that wasteful with a piece of plastic. Do you keep them all? (laughs) Yeah, just in case I ever have a battle. I'm waiting to stage a full uh, Lego recreation of Game of Thrones and I'm going to use the plastic swords from various cocktails accrued over the years. (laughs) Well, Ollie, I think it's time we wrap up because we're in Hawaii and I want to stop talking to you and go snorkelling. Sorry. And also, it's about four in the morning here, and I can hardly stay awake. (laughs) But it was totally worth this evening of my life. Oh, goody, goody. If you would like to keep us both awake at different ends of the earth in a future edition of Answer Me This, then um, supply us with your questions. Please do. You can email us. You can email us a voice memo, because our Skype and phone line are not working totally well. But you can still Skype and phone us as well. All of our contact details are on our website, answermethispodcast.com whereupon you can also find links to follow us on social media Uh, and remember that we have other podcast side projects for you to enjoy as well The Illusionist is back for 2018 you can find it all at theillusionist.org and a lot of people think a show about language that's just going to be grammar pedantry it isn't it's an entertainment show with a linguistic slant and uh, Ollie, you seem to have your voice on Myriad Podcasts. What's coming up this month? The Modern Man is between seasons at the moment, but do check out my other podcast, The Week Unwrapped. It is a weekly current affairs show about the stories that aren't headline news, but should be. Uh, and you can find it at theweekunwrapped.com. And if you think, well, I don't want to hear Ollie Mann giving his views on current affairs, fair enough, I'm with you, brother slash sister, but it's me talking to intelligent people who do have a valid view. Thank God. Uh, Martin, what's coming up in your podcast? We're covering Rain Dogs, the Tom Waits album Rain Dogs, because it's a podcast about Tom Waits. Uh, and we have uh, Heath and Robert Sledge, Robert Sledge of Ben Fold 5 fame. We've got uh, Phoebe and Lauren from Criminal, and we have Ross Sutherland from Imaginary Advice guesting with us. And you can find that at songbysongpodcast.com. Songbysongpodcast.com. So much to listen to, listeners, but you can also find our first 200 episodes if you want to go back into our earlier work and our albums you could listen to answer me this sports day during the winter olympics why not nice uh, and those are all at answermethisstore.com and if you want to try a sample of our archive material well just come back to this here podcast feed uh, halfway through the month there is a free re-release of something from the answer me this vaults and uh, we will return on the first thursday of march with a fresh new episode of answer me this and what country are you going to be in for that one helen don't know yet who knows don't know haven't booked it well if I needed another reason to tune in I've just had one so uh, rejoin us then bye bye